Our Psalter reading today is from Psalm 103, verses 1 through 5. It can be found on page 502 in the Bibles we provide. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel reading today and the sermon text is from the gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. It can be found on page 837 in the Bibles we provide. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving this in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive us? He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the gospel of Christ. Well, greetings to you in the blessed name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great privilege to be back at Cedar Springs Church, a church that I love and admire. And uh, many of us have you in our prayers regularly as you're going through this particular season. And I just want to say, don't be discouraged. When I went to Memphis 25 years ago to Second Presbyterian Church, they had been searching for three years. It was a good thing because by the time I got there, they were just glad to have a warm body. And, that, <laughs> and I've got that, so it worked out fine. And uh, so just be aware that God is at work. You may not understand all the ways that he's at work, but he is at work. Uh, the presence of God is palpably felt by those of us who are your guests and who know him. We know he's here. We know he's in your midst. And therefore, we know he's at work in your church. And it's just great to see you all this morning. It's also very good to be here with my dear friend, Andrew Keesling, with MJ and their kids, and others of you that I know from years past. Uh, thank you for the warm, hospitable welcome that I've received from you. Well, it's a pleasure to be a preacher on the day when the Rejoice Choir is singing. Weren't they terrific? I tell you, I'm listening to that choir, and then I look at Paul on the video, and I'm thinking, you guys got something going on here with your kids. They're doing great. Um, you need to export that if you can. I'm sure you are. Uh, not only world missions, but local as well. But it's a privilege and an honor to join the preachers who are looking at texts in the Gospels, starting last week with Andrew's sermon about the woman with the flow of blood. And throughout June, looking at these encounters that Jesus has with various types of sinners, which is to say various types of people like us. 
and to see how he responds to them, what we can learn about Jesus in these encounters. So it's great to be on the team with Andrew and Todd Erickson and John Franks, my friend Rufus Smith from Memphis. Uh, You notice that we all come from places where Andrew has been. And so because of the great job he does wherever he goes, we all owe him. So whatever he asks us to do, we do it. Well, let's look again at the text. If you closed your Bibles, please open them back up to Mark chapter 2, because we'll be making reference to this text. I don't get around as much as some of you do to the North American churches, because I'm usually preaching somewhere on Sunday morning. But every once in a while, if I'm on vacation or sabbatical, I go to I like to just go to random churches, to be honest with you, because I just want to know what's going on out there, realizing that we evangelicals, and especially we Reformed evangelicals, are a little tiny piece of the pie. And in my jumping around and visiting around through the years, there are many comments I could make about the American church as I perceive her. But one of the greatest needs, it seems to me, in the church in our culture is to regain a sense of wonder and awe, a sense of amazement again at who God is and what he has done in creation and redemption and what he promises to do in the consummation of all things. What a great God, as we sang about a moment ago. The earth is going to shout. Uh, My heart is going to sing. These bones are going to sing. How great are you, Lord. This is the greatest need of the church today. And I mention that because I believe that's what Mark is mentioning. Of course, his audience was probably primarily a Roman audience. Most scholars think he's writing to the church in Rome because he interprets certain Jewish habits and and gives the Latin equivalent. And so uh, we suspect that he's writing to a a largely Latin or Roman uh, audience, the church in Rome. And he's... He's seeking to arrest them with a sense of amazement. The reason I say that, if you look at your text in verse 12, you'll see that everybody was amazed and they glorified God. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 27, after Jesus had been teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum, in this case, he's in probably Peter's house in Capernaum, which if you've been there, is just 100 feet from the synagogue. But uh, when Jesus was in the synagogue teaching, you'll remember he cast out demons and everyone was amazed. It's a different word that Mark uses, but they were amazed at this new authority of teaching that Jesus had, unlike the rabbis. There are two different words used here for amazement, but if you read through Mark's gospel in the original, you'll find eight different words that he uses for astonishment or being terrified or afraid or amazed or Uh, just surprised. It's one of Mark's themes. And in Mark's gospel, 25 times you'll find a word like amazement. So he's trying to say, let me introduce you to Jesus. Let me introduce you to God, who is amazing and who has done amazing things. So let our hearts today be amazed. You know, uh, uh, I'm a grandfather, and whenever the Grandkids get around to Granny and Papa's house. Papa gets to lead in family worship. So the other night, we had several of our grandchildren there, and I took this very text. And before I could even finish reading it, the kids were all popping up and telling me what was going to happen next. They all knew the story. 
which of course is my way of checking out my children to be sure they're doing their job. And uh, so they knew the story, and you know the story too. But the point of our gathering today in this worship service, hearing the Word of God, is not just to refresh our minds on the facts of the case. The point of it all is that you, just like this paralytic, are to have a living, life-changing encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the reason Mark is writing so that we'll enter into the amazement ourselves, that we'll enter into the experience that this paralytic had 2,000 years ago. Now, what I'd like for you to notice in the text is that Paul, rather Mark is presenting at least two major reasons why you should be amazed at the Lord Jesus Christ, why your heart should be rekindled again this morning. The first one we find in verses 1 through 5. If you look at the text, you'll see that's where Jesus is going about announcing his healing. So we find there that we are to be amazed at the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ for broken, needy people like you and me. We're going to be amazed again at his compassion. We'll see some surprising things about this text. When you get to verse 6, all the way through the first half of verse 12, the second major thing that that Mark presents to us as amazing about Jesus is his authority, his unparalleled authority, this cosmic authority over everything in heaven and on earth. So we'll be amazed at his authority, and we'll examine some aspects of that authority, what it means to be amazed by it. And then we'll look at what difference it makes to be amazed. Well, let's back up now in verses 1 through 5, and let's be amazed again at the compassion of Jesus Christ for sinners like you and me. And several things I want you to notice about this compassion of Christ. And the first one is relatively obvious, isn't it? Jesus actually healed this man. The man's a paralytic. Now, Jesus was preaching in Capernaum, probably in Peter's house, and in a small Palestinian house, there's not room for much people. But you notice from chapter 1, verse 27 that I mentioned, until now, he's left Capernaum and gone about the Sea of Galilee preaching and healing. So he's established quite a reputation. And by now, when he comes back to Capernaum to preach again at Peter's house, there's a huge crowd. I would imagine Capernaum probably had a population, something near the the population in this room. This would be the population of the whole city, the whole village. And probably almost everybody and their children came out. If you've seen a Palestinian home, they're really small. You could only cram about 25 or 30 people in there. And on a hot Palestinian uh, day, uh, you wouldn't want any more than 25 or 30. So everybody else was outside crowding around the house. There is a paralytic in town. That means he's paralyzed at least from the waist down. He can't walk. He's completely helpless. He has to beg for food. He can't do anything. He has four friends. They each pick up a corner of the mat. They're going to get to Jesus because he's already been about healing. They know he's capable of healing. They trust that he could heal their friend. So they try to get close to Jesus and look at the crowd. There's no way I can get to him. How in the world? So what do they do? They're very enterprising. They go up on the roof. 
Now, this is probably not a Roman tiled roof. It's probably a Palestinian thatched roof. And the reason I say that is in the original language, uh, Mark says they unroofed the roof or uh, literally they, they dug down. So probably they dug down into the thatch and started removing it. And Peter's sitting there thinking, oh boy, I got to repair this roof again. And Jesus is preaching when all of a sudden this man is being lowered right in front of him. Now, those of us who preach have a few uh, intuitive rules about being interrupted and about being surprised. And I've had all kinds of surprises while I'm preaching. One day, a man sitting about where you are just fell out of his pew right there on the floor. I've had people who were walking in the balcony coming down the stairs and they, one of them tripped and started running all the way toward the front of the balcony and almost fell over. I've had a man who had a heart attack in the back row, passed out. They brought in the stretcher and took him out. Now, here's the general rule. If you're going to do something like that in the front row, we're going to stop and, make, and draw attention to it. We're going to gather around and pray and sing a hymn and see if you're doing all right. If you're doing that in the balcony, everybody notices, we'll make comment, be sure you're fine. If you're having a heart attack and near death in the back, just roll in the stretcher. I won't say a thing. Nobody will even notice it. So if you sit toward the front and something happens, you're interrupted and you have to draw attention to it because everyone's distracted. Well, look at Jesus, the preacher. Talk about distracted. <laughs> they, they bring him right down from the top and set this man right in front of him. Surprise, now what you gonna do? Well, here's what Jesus does. Here's what Jesus does. He surprises them. He surprises them again by healing him to begin with. That's the first surprise. There are four surprises I want to point out that Jesus offers. The first one is one of healing. Now, the people say, you notice in verse 12, we've never seen anything like this. Jesus was doing unprecedented things, things that no one had seen, no one had heard of, no one had heard teaching like this before. He was unique. Now, there are some things that I admit, I don't understand. That seems so complicated. They're way beyond me. I mean, this little thing I've got in my pocket, uh, I, all I know is if I punch that button and put in a code and punch about three other buttons, I can get my wife 500 miles away on the phone. I can talk to someone in Tokyo and I can see them. On this, on this thing right here, I've got thousands of books that I can access right here on this little thing. How this works, I have no idea. I'm a preacher. What do I know? But there are some electrical engineers in this room who if you give them an afternoon, they can explain this to you. They can tell you why it works, what the science is behind it. It's not a miracle. It's just over my head. Likewise, if you've ever been to a nuclear reactor, you're just amazed this thing works. You have no idea how it works. But if you'll give a nuclear physicist two afternoons, he can actually explain to you scientifically how this whole thing works. But would you please look at what Jesus does? There's nobody who can explain this. We've never seen anything like this. There's no scientific explanation for this. Jesus suspends the laws of nature. He does something that's unprecedented. He performs a miracle. And he does it because of compassion. You'll notice in Jesus' miracles, he's never serving himself. He never turns the stones into bread for himself. He never comes down off that cross to save himself by miracle. 
All of his miracles are for you. He's exercising his power for your healing. He heals the man. Now, we know from the scriptures that we are promised healing. In fact, Blythe read it just a moment ago in Psalm 103, that he forgives all of our sins and he heals all of our diseases. He heals all of your diseases. You say you're sounding like a Pentecostal, almost. Here's the Pentecostal problem. Unfortunately, there are a number of people in our world, Christian people, who get very confused at this point, and they think the reason you're not healed is that you don't have enough faith. Ladies and gentlemen, what's required is not faith, but patience. The Lord is working over a long period of time and into eternity. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got all of time in his hands. And he's determined that you're going to be a healthy, whole, complete, happy human being. Give him the time that he's appointed for it, which is when Jesus comes back and our bodies are completely healed. So if you're sick or you know someone who is, God has a purpose in that. If you have experienced temporary healing, which I and many of my family have, he has a purpose in that. And then we're all going to die unless Jesus comes back. And then when he does come back, we're all going to be healed as he promised and even beyond what he's promised. Because what I've discovered about Jesus is that he makes wonderful promises. But whenever he fulfills them, they're always greater than what he promised. And so it will be with us. We're going to be healed. And Jesus does it. You should be amazed. Now, the second surprise is this. If you'll look in verse 5, you'll see that Mark says that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? He's talking about the faith of the four friends. Now, this is remarkable. It's what we call vicarious faith. We're more familiar with the cases in the New Testament, like the one you studied last week with the woman with the flow of blood. She was healed. Nobody else could heal her. She had spent all of her money on doctors. They didn't help her at all. No offense, physicians. Uh, but in her day, the doctors could not help her. She was broke because she had spent all of her money on her medical bills. She was desperate. She was helpless. Jesus healed her. And here's what he said. He said, daughter, your faith, your faith has saved you. Go and be at peace and be healed. So he makes reference to her faith, not that her faith had the power to heal her. Her faith was the instrument through which God's power healed her. But now look what Jesus is saying. He looks to the person who's not ill, who have faith, and he says, then he heals the one whose faith he was not mentioning. This is amazing. It's called vicarious faith. And he saw their faith. He didn't hear it. They didn't just recite the Apostles' Creed. What did he observe about them? They were breaking all social conventions. They were going to extreme measures in order to get their friend to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was only one reason they were doing that. They believed. They knew if they just got their friend to Jesus, their friend would be healed. That's called faith. Jesus saw their faith. You know what? You can see it today. Let me tell you how you see it. You see it when parents come forward, like Josh and Stephanie, 
and they take their vows that they're going to pray with and for their child, and they also claim God's covenant promises on his behalf. And you remember, they look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for their son's salvation as they do for their own. Now, they can't believe for their son. He's going to have to grow up and trust in Jesus Christ himself for salvation. However, I just saw a choir law full of kids. And I'll just tell you, as an old man with a lot of grandchildren, I know somebody prayed for those people. Somebody's been teaching those people. There's faith in the room that has affected the homes. And that's the way it is with you. Parents actually give the gift of vicarious faith to their children, and you are to exercise it. You are responsible for the pew you put your children in. And if you're visiting from a liberal, non-gospel-centered church, you need to get your children out of there. The house is on fire. Get out and get to a place where they will hear the gospel. You're responsible for that. You're the vicarious person that's leading them to the Lord Jesus Christ. He sees your faith and often blesses them. That's the way it works. I'll tell you another way we see it. When you talk to your friends at school, even though they scorn you for it, you talk to your friends at school about Jesus Christ and about your relationship with him. You talk to your friends at work about what difference he's made in your life, knowing as David Kenneman and Gabe Lyons have famously said in their book, Good Faith, that the majority of the U.S. population believes that when you think your way to be saved is the only way to be saved, that you are extremists. And when you believe that one should only marry somebody of the opposite gender, you're being extreme. The majority of Americans believe that about you. So I realize what I'm saying. It takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? It takes being amazed by Jesus is what it takes. And you testify to him. And here's why you do it. You believe. You believe this. If you believe it, this is what the person needs. And you know it. And Jesus sees your faith. So every evangelist, I'm telling you why evangelists and witnesses are effective. It's primarily because they believe. You have this knucklehead at work. You don't think she could ever become a Christian. You don't think he could ever leave the old lifestyle. You've just given up on him. He's beyond even God's help. And then your friend comes along who's got faith and knows that God has infinite power and he can save knuckleheads and he saves them through that evangelist. It often happens this way. So the surprise is not only that Jesus heals, but he heals through somebody else's faith. Now, thirdly, look at the text and you'll see another surprise. And this is the big one. Jesus heals deeply. This is how his compassion runs. It runs deeply. This is the big surprise. Everybody, those four men, wanted their friend healed of his paralysis. So they go to all this trouble, removing the roof over the preacher. They let him down. And here Jesus is going to let them down. He doesn't say you're healed. He says, my son, your sins are forgiven. We didn't come here for assurance of pardon. We came here for a healing. Jesus surprises. Here's why he surprises. We all know the connection between the psychological life and the physical life. That's one thing. It's well proven. 
But we sometimes forget the biblical, theological, real connection between sin and disease. Now, Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 9, we don't have disease, specific diseases because of specific sins. But while that's true, it's also true that we do have sickness because of Adam and Eve and every one of us who came after them. In other words, this is what Jesus is doing. Like the great physician that he is, you bring him a patient and he gives a piercing diagnosis of that patient. Now, you know, as a physician or as a patient or both, you're not going to make any progress in your healing unless you get a proper diagnosis. And we know that because if Birmingham's a great medical center, you've got great medical care here, but I've watched you. And when you get in in, in straits where you can't come up with a diagnosis, you're off to Rochester, Minnesota, to Mayo's or the Cleveland Clinic or Johns Hopkins or MD Anderson, you're going all over the place just to get the proper diagnosis. Because once you get the diagnosis, oftentimes the local physicians can apply the remedy. Ladies and gentlemen, you have a massive disease, far worse than cancer. You've got to have it properly diagnosed. You need the great physician. And Mayo's can't do this for you, nor can MD Anderson. Only heaven can pull this off for you. And here's the diagnosis. You're a sinner. It's at the core of your being. You're rotten on the inside unless Jesus Christ comes and gives you a new heart. This is the diagnosis. And Jesus immediately gives the right diagnosis. Why? Because he wants to be politically correct. Telling a paralytic, you know, your big problem is you're a sinner. I know how that goes. You know, when I teach marriage, I always say there are two big principles. If you can get these in mind, you're going to take your marriage to a new place. Okay, you ready? Two ideas you've got to embrace. Number one, you're the problem. <laughs> Number two, Jesus is the answer. Now, there you have it. That's my marriage seminar. You don't need to pay me some fee to bring me in. That's the whole thing. And the problem is most people think their problem is the marriage or more commonly that it's my mate. Your problem is not the marriage. You never promised you'd have a happy marriage. You promised you'd be a loving and faithful spouse and you have complete control over that. And that's what you promised. So stay focused on what you promised and look to Jesus because you can't do this. You're the problem. Jesus is the answer. Here's Jesus diagnosing this paralytic. Let me tell you what your real problem is. You stink. You're a sinner. You're corrupt. Really, me? Yes, you. And I'm telling you what, I'm your answer. My son, your sins are forgiven. Oh, how I wish everybody in this room on good, reliable evidence would believe your sins are forgiven you for a multitude of reasons. But just to begin, some of you know the name Dr. Carl Menninger. He was a psychiatrist in the 20th century, and he had a clinic out in Kansas, of all places, the Menninger Clinic. And Carl Menninger said, after years of practice, that he could empty 75% of his inpatient psychiatric beds if he could convince his clients of one notion. Your sins are forgiven. What he's saying is that all of the repression and the 
and the transfer of guilt and the anger and the pathologies that we experience, most of it, most of it is coming from unresolved guilt. You've really not appropriated the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying to you, I'm telling you, my son, I'm telling you, my daughter, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you have a Roman Catholic background, like a lot of people in our church, uh, they learned as children that you'll find out if your sins are forgiven at the end of the day when you die. And uh, if they're not all forgiven, you'll go to purgatory until they're burned off. And then eventually, if you've if you're you know, been baptized in the church, you'll make it to heaven. Some of you were taught that. Notice Jesus is not saying your sins will be forgiven. Would you please look at the tense of that verb? My son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins of yesterday, your sins of today, and frankly, your sins of tomorrow already forgiven. This is the reason that Jesus, when he was crucified on Calvary's tree, his first word, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And I have to admit, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. And he's forgiven it all. Do you know this? It's a shocking, surprising, astonishing aspect of what Jesus did on that day 2,000 years ago. So he heals deeply. He heals, in this case, vicariously, and he heals. But I want you to notice a fourth surprise. The surprise is that what looked like a tragedy, namely paralysis, ended up being the very instrument that God used to get this man to Jesus and have his life absolutely turned right side up. A few moments ago, Andrew prayed for a lot of sick people, and the list was so long he had to go through rather quickly. And I listened to each of the names. I couldn't quote them all for you, but I know you know them and you prayed for them. And you know, when you're in the hospital, you think, well, I'm here to get well. And you are. Well, let me tell you something. You're there for another reason. You're there to get close to God. The Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, used this man's worst situation to bring him into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and to experience his enormous power on his behalf and to have his eternal life completely changed. Whatever your circumstances are, would you please realize God has appointed a purpose for it? And the purpose is for your good. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So we notice, first of all, we must be amazed by the depth and the breadth and the height and the length of the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, look at verses 6 through 12. We'll go through it quickly. We must be amazed by his authority. Now, notice how this all begins in, in verse 6. The scribes who were educated people, and there weren't too many. Palestine was a very poor country. You have to understand, if you go to the poorest barrio in Knoxville, it's far wealthier than, than the villages Jesus was going to. Uh, in, in Israel in the first century, it was very poor, very mean, if you will. So Jesus is dealing with largely poor illiterate, uneducated people, except for the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They, they had the privilege of education. And they've been trained a certain way. And you can see from their criticism that there's some logic to their theology. They're saying, why, look at verse 6. Why is this man talking like this? 
He's blaspheming. What does that mean? That means defaming the name of God. How's he doing that? He is claiming to do what God alone can do. No man can claim that, that he's the deity or acting like he's the deity. Now, the scribes had a point in the Old Testament over and over again. You'll see that God has the power to forgive sins and only God. For example, when David committed his cluster of amazingly bad sins and Nathan the prophet came to him and it was all revealed and David said simply, which I wish so many of us would say when we're aware of our sin and become convicted, just make it really simple, I've sinned. That's what David said, I have sinned. That's it, no excuses, no qualifications, I sinned. And then Nathan said to him, the Lord has put away your sin. What wonderful words. Now, Nathan said that, but Nathan wasn't saying that he has done it. He was saying the Lord has done it. But the scribes pick up on the nuance and they hear Jesus saying more than what Nathan said. My son, he says, your sins are forgiven. He says that with authority. And they say, he's blaspheming. So the scribes had some logic to their theology, but they were missing something. And what they were missing was the heart of the whole matter. They had a paradigm in their mind, a religious tradition that didn't allow for Jesus to enter in. They didn't have categories to deal with the fact that Messiah would actually come and that he would fulfill the promises of God in the Old Testament and do it in a way that blows your socks off. They didn't allow for that in their theology. They had God in an ice box and they, they put the deity over here and we know how he performs. He's over there and we're over here and we've got our rules and may the best man win. That's the scribal approach. And Jesus obliterated all of that. And, he said, and Jesus, you notice, knows what's in their hearts. He perceives in his spirit that they're just thinking this stuff. Isn't that amazing? And he says, let me ask you something. What's easier? To say to this man, your sins are forgiven. Or to say to this man, rise, take up your bed and walk. Now, you and I know that what's actually easier is to tell the man to rise, take up his bed and walk. Because if you tell him his sins are forgiven, somebody's going to have to pay for those sins. So it's a lot more difficult to say your sins are forgiven. But what Jesus means in this case is which is easier to get by with. In other words, which cannot really be verified? Which is easier just to say? Well, you can say your sins are forgiven. Who can say whether they're not, they are or they're not? That'd be easy for me to say. It's just words. But if I say to a paralytic, rise, take up your bed and walk, well, pff, we're all gonna know whether my words have authority. This is called an a fortiori argument. A fortiori in Latin means from the stronger. So Jesus is making a case from the stronger to the weaker. So it's more difficult to say, rise, take up your bed and walk because everybody can verify it. So I'll take the more difficult case first and then a fortiori away from the stronger case. That'll then prove what I'm saying about the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus says, so that you may know the son of man, the Daniel 13 the Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, 14 figure who has dominion over all the universe and all the nations and languages and people so that you might know that the Son of Man has power and authority to say your sins are forgiven. He looks to the man and says, rise, resurrect, literally, resurrect and take up your bat and go home. 
And we're told immediately the man got up and was resurrected as it were. He rose and took his mat and went home. And I tell you one day, ladies and gentlemen, no matter how old or young you are when he comes back and he calls out your name at the day of glory when he reappears, the whole world will say, we've never seen anything like this. When man and woman and boy and girl who put their faith in Jesus Christ rise up and take their weaknesses because they have no more any weaknesses, no more tears, no sorrow. And as Andrew prayed a few moments ago, and the whole world will be astonished. That's what happened that day. So Jesus claimed authority. Let me ask you, have you come under his authority? Are you astonished by his unrivaled power and authority to do what he says? Are you confident that just as he has made the world and drawn you in to be among his people, that he will renew you at the last day? Are you confident of this? Have you put your faith in his authority to do so? Now, lastly, look at verse 12b. Here's where we're told that they were amazed. What did they do with their amazement? They glorified God. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? What it means to glorify God is to reflect his character. So we glorify God in two primary ways, through speech and through conduct. In speech, it begins in worship. Why were you singing so loudly a few moments ago? Which I immensely enjoyed joining in with because I have a lousy voice, but I have a loud, a loud one. And so you let me get by with my loud voice by singing. Why do we sing loudly? Because we're amazed. We're astonished at everything we were talking about in those songs. We're amazed. We can't help but sing his praise. Furthermore, when we go out the door and we talk with the world about him, why? Because we're amazed. We're in love. We're astonished at him. I've got a friend who's getting married on Saturday, and all of us who are his friends are really glad because we're tired of hearing about it. I mean, we think she's a great gal. I mean, we love her to death, but good heavens. I mean, for this has been going on for months. That's all he's talking about. Some of you know what I, what I mean with this. And, you know, when they get married, maybe it'll tone the, the voice down a little bit, but he just talk, 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 talk. That's all he talks about. And it's all she talks about. Why? They're in love. When you're in love with Jesus Christ, this is what fuels the witness of the church. If you think that the church today is weak in its witness, it's because we're weak in our amazement. We're weak in our sense of wonder and awe. So we glorify God with our voices here and out there. Secondly, through our conduct, because when you're walking with Jesus, you're imitating him, you're displaying who he is. So people can look at you and your communal life and the way you all love each other, and they say, there's something different here. I, I, I've not seen this in other place. I've seen something kind of like it, but I've never seen this. It's got to be explained. Well, I'll tell you what the explanation is. God himself is working out by his Holy Spirit, his good spirit in your life is working out the character that glorifies him. Now, word of warning. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends his disciples out two by two and he warns them that they're going to be resisted. And he begins to say, don't feel like the world's rejected you, they've rejected me. And then he launches into some judgments. And he says, woe to you, Chorazin, a little town just north of Capernaum. Woe to you, Bethsaida, just northeast of Capernaum. 
For if the deeds done in, uh, in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes. And then he says, and what about you, Capernaum? Will you be exalted to the heavens? He says, no, you'll be taken down to Hades. Wow. Here's what he's saying. Some people are amazed for a short period of time or amazed at a miracle, but they don't stay amazed at him. You know why? I'll tell you why. Look back at verse 2, and you get the hint. Jesus went to Capernaum not to heal the paralytic. He didn't go to Capernaum to work miracles. He went to Capernaum to preach and to teach. And in verses 38 and 39 of chapter 1, he says, that's why I have come. I've come to teach you God's Word in the kingdom. Ladies and gentlemen, miracles are wonderful when God does them. But they don't save. The Word of God read and believed saves. Jesus came primarily to teach. In Mark's gospel, the words teach, teacher, and teaching, you'll find 28 times. In every instance but one applying to Jesus Christ, Mark is making a point. The essence of this ministry is to believe the Word of God. This is the reason that when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and two guys after the resurrection did not recognize him, believe it or not, he didn't say, look at my body, I'm here. He broke the bread, remember? And they were enlightened in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And then he taught them the scriptures. The resurrected Jesus, when he wanted to minister to his disciples, taught the scriptures. This is what you need. Some of you are not reading the Bible very much. Why don't you resolve today? I want to be amazed. I want to be an amazed follower of Jesus. So, Lord, would you please minister to me through your word? I want to take in the word. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what Mark is saying to all of us. You have an amazing Savior, and there's an amazing way to get to know him. Read his amazing word and ask for him to give you his amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to love sinners like us. And we are, once again this morning, amazed by your deep compassion, your broad compassion for people like ourselves. And we're amazed at the extent and the glory of your authority. And we pray that we may stay amazed as your word dwells richly in our hearts. As we go our ways, Lord, would you please go with us and empower us with a new, renewed sense of wonder at who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.